Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Open World Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Flood, and today I'm joined by Michael Margolis. He's the CEO and founder of Get Storied, and he spent the last 15 years on a path of transformation, transformational storytelling, pioneering new practices for corporate innovation, social change, and career in reinvention. He served as a story advisor for leading institutions such as Google, NASA, and Greenpeace. He's unlocked core narratives for over 30 different industries. He's developed online courses, virtual summits, conferences, and live workshops that serve tens of thousands. He's been doing this for nearly two decades, and on the outside, he was a success, but on the inside, he felt like he was a mess. So he knew that it was time to <laughs> break free. <laughs> Do you like the little rhyming action there? Yeah, a success. On you, the I gotta, outside, I gotta, I gotta take inside. you. I gotta take you on the road, Danny. You gotta introduce me everywhere I go. I love it. <laughs> I have to create this story here. So, uh, so he was he was felt like he was unfulfilled because he knew that his own story was lacking. He wanted to rediscover the core of himself that he had long put on the shelf during his career. So what he did was he sold off ninety percent of his possessions, emptied a big house in Marin County, California, and then he started working, living, and teaching around the world. He actually had to overcome a lot of inner demons just to take that leap. So many of the things that hold all of us back from making this big life change. And now he calls uh, Vancouver, Amsterdam, Mumbai, San Francisco, Melbourne, and New York City are all the places he calls home now. And he says that story is the biggest and most overlooked factor in the success of your life. So Michael's here to teach us uh, how to create your own powerful life story and narrative. And he's also going to share his own story, making this lifestyle of reality. So welcome to the show, Michael. After that long introduction, thank you for being so patient. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Danny, man. Oh, it's all good. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, the life of the nomad, uh, if, if nothing else, it teaches us all patience and, uh, and how to deal with uh, the bumps in the road with things that are outside our control. So no, I'm, I'm thrilled to connect with you right now. And uh, yeah, thanks for that. Freaking so you, ridiculously awesome intro. How are you feeling today? Where are you calling us from? Uh, I'm in Amsterdam uh, and um, feeling great. I've been here almost a month. I've been here for most of August. And actually tomorrow I leave and I'll be in the U.S. for a couple weeks uh, with a couple client engagements. And then I'm back in Europe uh, through the end of October. Okay, so walk me back to the beginning when you... Um, Let's say when you were a youth, when you were going through college, how did you get started on this path of business storytelling and how has it led you to where you are now? Mm. Well, so, you know, people need to know, like, I used to suck at storytelling, especially when it came to my own story. And uh, so I, I come to this work... <sighs> Like the, the saying goes, we, we teach what we need to learn most. And much of my early life, uh, you know, I was a nerd like long before it was cool to be a nerd. You know, I ate a lot of shit pies growing up as a kid. 
Uh, and when I was nine years old, we moved from Lausanne, Switzerland to Los Angeles, California. So you can just imagine Swiss lederhosen boy trying to fit into surfer skater culture. Right? I know, I know you're a SoCal boy, Danny, like, you know, uh, they, uh, yeah, they ate me for lunch. And, um, I think in many ways it was that experience of being a stranger in a strange land of not really fitting in or belonging and wanting to figure out, God, what's my place in the world? I think it really started there. And then I've been a seeker ever since, you know, I studied cultural anthropology and comparative religion when I was in university. And then I graduated in 1998, right at the birth of the age of the internet. And I very quickly uh, found myself uh, right place, right time, and I became a social entrepreneur uh, and co-founded two nonprofits that were applying business principles to social change. Uh, by the age of 23, I was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation, advising the Department of Labor, uh, working on digital divide issues about how technology would increasingly determine have and have-nots from an economic career standpoint. And then by the age of 24, epic startup fail. And so it's really picking up the pieces at the age of 24 of dealing with, you know, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual crisis uh, as a seeker, but then going like there, there's something missing from the conversation about uh, how we look at innovation, how we take an idea and bring it into reality. And uh, this really became my obsession, uh, the thing I wanted to wrestle to the ground. And, you know, 15 years later, and I still, you know, it still feels like a tiger by the tail. What happened when you were 24? How did you fail? And uh, walk me through that experience. You know, it was... Um, I mean, more than anything, it was about my own, like, breakdown, my own uh, hitting the wall, uh, where, um, you know, just burning the candle at both ends. And I, uh, you know, got so sick that um, I could barely walk. Um, I had a blood clot in my leg and... Then doctor gave me the wrong some medication that I had an allergic reaction to. Next thing I know, I have nonspecific hepatitis, and you know, and I'm like laying in bed by myself. I'm living in Boston at the time, and like I'm I'm literally wrestling with with my demons, turning John to sickest I've ever been in my life. And the entire time, for hours, I'm kind of in and out of this delirium for hours on end. And as I'm in this delirium, I can't stop thinking about my work. That's all I was thinking about. And uh, so when like the fever sort of cracked and I sort of came to a couple days later, I just had this sober realization that something fundamental had to change in my life. And, you know, within a week, I handed in my resignation. Uh, you know, it took a couple months to transition. I, I, you know, I founded and ran this organization. So in the process of me, of me leaving the organization, you know, it already, you know, it was still a startup, but with me sort of leaving it, it really just didn't have the legs to, to, uh, to really carry forward. Um, and, um, yeah. And I went on, uh, 
you know, a journey to first and foremost get my health back. But in that process, um, it really was a a deeper journey of my own um, just self-inquiry. Like, who am I? What's the ground I stand on? And, um, you know, I was so good at traveling between the worlds. I've always been really good at that. But I was so good at traveling between these different worlds that I didn't know what ground I stood on, who I really was. So I went and lived at a yoga center in the Berkshires for four months called Krupalu, which is like the largest yoga health center in the U.S. Uh, you know, and it was a place where I had, uh, you know, rice in my bowl, a roof over my head, and all I had to do was just be. And for the first time in my life, I didn't define myself on my work. You know, actually what I was doing every single day was I was cleaning 40 toilets and making 50 beds a day. You know, and that's what I did. That was kind of the karma yoga or the, the selfless service that was part of me living in this place. And and I found joy and dignity in that work, but it wasn't about the work. It was about really discovering more of who I who I am. And and that really was just a you know, the, an opening uh of um yeah, of a much much you know, really what the journey has been the last fifteen years. Uh but that was definitely a big inflection point. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think I've had a couple of those crises of meaning in my own life that I can point to. Yeah. And I never had it as bad as you did where I was, you know, in the hospital or anything like that because I was working so much. But I know the feeling of, you know, just because I, I felt like I had nothing else to turn to. My my work was my only refuge, yeah. you know, and I felt like I was distant from, distant from my friends, you know, like uh, they wouldn't show up when I, you know, they might flake out on a commitment or something like this and I just like well, what why even bother you know I'll just focus on work because it's always there for me and this one time I was like in Starbucks or something and it was Christmas day and I was trying to get ahead you know <laughs> when everyone else was taking the day off and the barista asked me you know why are you working on Christmas and I thought well why are you working on Christmas and it was like, <laughs> you know she had to be there because she was an employee but for me it was because I didn't have anywhere else to go and I remember, you know, one big change was when I just started doing the dreamlining exercise with some of my friends uh, from the four-hour work week, and I realized all my goals were about work and had to break free, change my environment. That was really powerful. And another point was when I was traveling, you know, and doing all these cool things, and I just didn't feel much joy in it. I didn't feel much joy in the work anymore in my business. And then I had to figure out what was next, and then I had to kind of just withdraw and go in isolation for a while, stay close to nature, and then, you know, see how I could come back to the scene and contribute more, I think. Um, but I, the thing I wanted to, we kind of just, you kind of brushed over it really quickly. What demons were you mm. dealing with um, in your own mind? Because I, I want to see if there's something that I could relate to. I'm sure that other people can relate to, too, too as well. Mm. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think we all we all have our, you know, our personal cast of characters, and um, when it comes to our demons, uh, I'd say for me, there's a few. You know, first and foremost, I would say, you know, my dark passenger for much of my life has been a core sense of loneliness, and. And, and and it comes in many different forms. It, it comes from uh, a feeling of uh, like being in the world but not of it. You know, it's like uh, 
I don't know. I used to go to school, and and when I was in school, I felt like school was preparing me for a world that didn't exist. And I was like, really? Like this is it? This is this is all we get? Um, and so this notion of like, all right, so what? Where, where is my place in the world? You know, I grew up all over. I was raised in Switzerland as a kid, then in LA through high school. My father's from Rhodesia or Zimbabwe. Uh, you know, I'm a real mutt. And, and in many ways, that's my gift of the work I'm able to do. Uh, but the balance of it was, was like, all right, well, where's my place? Where do I belong? So that's been, that's been a really big demon. I think the other one is, um, is, is really around seeing such a world of infinite possibilities. You know, my mind thinks in a circle. It doesn't think in a straight line. I always see so many different angles and possibilities and opportunities. And uh, so learning how to hold the lightsaber of how do I focus my energy and and, and recognizing all the places where I uh, dilute or basically give away my time and attention um, has been, I would say, probably the more recent demon that's been a big focus of my life over the last few years and, and a big thing that inspired me in, in going nomad of wanting to simplify and empty the cup um, so that like the more simple my life becomes, the more I get to, to really confront and see where my life is still complicated, more complicated than I want or need it to be. Um, and so that's been a really, really powerful vehicle in, um, in really working with, with that demon. So those are a couple. Do you feel that there are demons from your past that come to manifest and rear their ugly head? And do they cause some kind of conflict? Have you needed to seek healing from this? Because I know that there are different selves present in each of us. And a lot of times we tend to uh, forget a lot of things, you know, past traumas. But we kind of push them onto our subconscious where they still kind of linger a little bit. Mm. And even though they're, they're not in our conscious mind, like they can still come out and, and hurt us, I think. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, I, I think that the, the, I appreciate this metaphor of a demon of, of like the, you know, the sort of our, the, the thing that we're most afraid of, or the thing that scares us, you know, and the balance to it is, I don't really, I don't really live from this place of like my demons. Um, I actually, what I, what I often say to people, like make friends with the dragon, because that dragon actually is uh, the the vehicle for your growth and transformation. Like, for instance, I have a lot of uh, food sensitivities. I'm gluten-free. I'm dairy-free. I'm sugar-free. You know, I joke around with people. I'm flavor-free and fun-free, you know, when it comes to food. But actually, I, I really enjoy eating that really simple diet. But, you know, as a nomad especially, i got to fight for being able to get the right food. Um you know, and, and sometimes I talk to people who are like, oh, God, yeah, I just discovered I'm gluten-free, and oh, my God, what a tragedy, and this is so, this is so, um, this is so sad, and, and everything, um, and, um, but, uh, you know, I then, uh, it's like, it's like realizing, though, that's like, well, you know what, my body gives me the boundaries that um, I couldn't give myself any other way, so, um, you know, like there's a gift in that. It's like, 
my body's basically teaching me how to wake the fuck up, right? Because I know if I eat gluten in five minutes, I'm in a brain fog, right? Like similarly, like I don't really drink alcohol because I drink if I have to be polite, but it's like, eh, I don't like to be anything less than as present as I can be. So, um, yeah. Your body's, you feel like you're hurting your body basically. Well, it's not about hurting my body, although that may be true too. It's more of, um, I value being conscious over many other values, many other choices. And so, uh, and yet, let me tell you, if I wasn't alert, you know, if I didn't have this hypersensitivity to gluten, God, would I have the discipline to be so religious of like it never enters my body? You got to be kidding me. I'm a glutton for life, Danny. I have a heart, you know, like I, I love life. I love its flavors, its textures, its experiences in every freaking color. Um, so I find that there's um, there's a great gift in in the um, the grist for the mill, the things that we come up against, um, those points of resistance actually are the they're they're actually the they are the mechanism of character building, and they they're they're the creative tension that allows us to come into ourself, um, and and you know in many ways it's a it's a fundamental narrative principle. Right, like you, there's always going to be um, a, a sense of a dynamic tension between um, who you are versus who you want to be, or between um, between desire versus complication, um, yeah. and, and just and like making friends with that versus cursing it, versus trying to like you know versus trying to like uh, conquer it or um, slay the dragon. So no, 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 make friends with it. It's a gift mm. that whatever that creative tension you're in, and all of that said, pick your battles. You know, like, am I choosing the right battle to fight, or is there somewhere else that I should focus on the creative tension? Yeah, because um, I find oftentimes we're, kind of we're really picking stupid battles. I think we're hopping around a bit, but I think that um, for me personally, like. The thing, reason I don't smoke and I don't really drink alcohol hardly ever or eat cake because these things don't represent the kind of identity that I want to create. Because mm. um, I want to kind of, the way that I want to visualize myself in my mind is someone who's healthy, who's putting good things in my body, um, who's energetic, who's effective, who's really productive. And all of these things will hurt that identity. And so that's why I tend to stay away from them. Um, but I find that creating that identity is kind of a conscious thing. And mm. that resistance is a form of something that comes up from the subconscious that I have less control over. And so it's kind of scary to have less control over that subconscious. Like, and that's something that I've been kind of really taking note of a lot lately. Because if I wake up in the middle of the night at 3 or 4 in the morning, my subconscious has been active for like 6 hours. And suddenly all of these thoughts come to the surface that I had not thought of, you know, for a very long time. You know, like whether it was past uh, disagreements I had with an ex-girlfriend or something like this. All of these things that I thought were, you know, far gone from my memory. Um, but they suddenly come out in my subconscious. And I wonder, you know, what is actually buried deep in there? And mm-hmm. how do I kind of integrate this uh, better so that I, I'm more at peace with this dragon rather than it, you know, trying to tear my head off? <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, we, as human beings, at the end of the day, we want to know, like with any story, we want to know it all, it's all going to make sense. 
what we're looking for is uh, we, we, we want more of a continuity story than a change story. And, and so what, what often happens, part of that challenge that a lot of us have is lack of coherence. You talked about identity. Like, who am I? Like, what do I do? Who do I serve? And in the age that we live in, how many of us are on career paths that didn't exist 15 years ago? How many of us are building worlds or imagining new possibilities or using technology and design and entrepreneurship to, to envision and create things that we never could have 15 years ago? So this is what so many of us are up to. And, and, and with that, the half-life of our so-called identity is shorter and shorter. There are new parts of ourselves we're constantly rewriting over and over and over again. And um, that's one of the places I see for a lot of entrepreneurs and creatives is, is you're changing faster than you have the time to update your story to reflect that change. And um, that, you know, that, that creates that internal tension, but it also makes it hard for the people who want to be in relationship with you. If you have a business, the people, the clients that you serve, or if you're a freelancer, what your sort of expertise or, you know, in specialty is, um, and how you communicate that, um, much less to friends and family. Um, so getting, getting your story straight is, uh, you know, I believe becoming fluent in the language of narrative is a fundamental prerequisite to succeeding in this digital age. If you don't understand storytelling principles and how, how to be the author of your own story as opposed to being the victim of your story, uh, then uh, that's going to be a, you know, that struggle that you find yourself in. I know exactly where to find you 10 years from now, 20 years from now, right? It's like Sisyphus pushing a rock up a hill. Okay, so you mentioned some great points there, and, and you mentioned relationships, um, and you mentioned uh, being a victim of the story. So first I want yeah. to ask you about the victim of the story, because that, that no, no doubt, is as a result of the inner story that we're telling ourselves. Yes. And that's, so look, that's really yeah. kind of what drives everyone, right? So tell me about that, yeah. that inner story. Well, we've all had suffering in our lives. Okay. Um, and suffering is not a contest for each of us. Our suffering is very real and very personal. Uh, we don't get to choose the family of origin that we're born into. And there's many things, you know, that happen to us as children or early in our lives that again, we didn't really choose. Shit just happens. And, you know, as life continues, we find ourselves in plenty of circumstances that are full of constraints. And, and, um, and one can feel or say that, you know, like, oh, well, it's great. You've got all this empowerment, hoo-ha stuff, but you don't know the place I'm in. You don't know the, the you know, the burdens I carry, you, you, you know, sort of that storyline. And it's... Um, that's a very disempowering storyline because think of it this way. So um, life's all about choices. And uh, frankly, storytelling is all about choices. You have to decide what matters most versus what belongs on the cutting room floor. Like our life is finite. Time is finite. You have to make choices. 
Where do you put your time and attention? So everything in life is about choice. The choices that you make is what advances the story. If you don't like the story that you're in, make a new choice. It immediately advances the story. So choice is everything, right? Now, all of that said, no matter what choice you make, your essential self is going to show up despite the circumstances. So you ultimately, like, pick wisely, but you can't pick wrong. The question is, you know, how bloody is the path going to be? There's many paths up the mountain. Right? Do you want to take the escalator up the mountain? Do you want to climb the north face that they say nobody ever climbs the north face, right, because you're guaranteed to die? Uh, there's, there's an infinite number of paths. Uh, so choices really matter, but at the end of the day, no matter what choice we make, like our true self will work with it, whatever it gives it, right? It's character building uh, in, in the development of who you really are. And when you recognize that, that's what allows you to become a master of your own destiny as opposed to a victim of your story. Like being a victim of the story is where you look at how life or the world is acting upon you. Whereas a master of, of your own destiny is you acting upon the story or you acting upon the world. It's that simple shift opens up everything. Uh, to your point around one's attitude uh, of the inner game of relationship to what life is and what one can create with one's life, no matter the circumstances. How do we become the masters of our own destiny? Is that a simple mental shift? Well, it begins with a sh- – there is a mental shift and then like anything, uh, it's about practice. It's really looking at what are the practices uh, that are part of your daily life and daily work that reinforce uh, how you relate to yourself and how you relate to the world. So you know, we have, for instance, a course that's one of our best-selling online courses – that is on personal brand storytelling. And it's called The New About Me. And it's basically how to talk about who you are, what you do, who you serve, right, with relevance and authenticity uh, without sounding like a wanker. Because before any business meeting, you've been Googled. Right? People are experiencing your story online before they experience you in real life. We don't think about this. I mean, this is the age that we live in right now. Like, you, you can't really be a recluse anymore. It's really hard to be successful at life or in the world as a recluse. Like, most of us, you have to recognize that life, you know, as, as Howard Rheingold says, life is increasingly performance art. Like, thanks to the internet, life is increasingly performance art. We're all on stage. And making peace with that, um, really begins by uh, looking at the breadcrumbs of your past life experiences and finding coherence. What are the themes or the threads? You know, for me, it's all about the heart. Like people know me for my mind. I want to be remembered for my heart. And, and in my heart of hearts, Danny, the thing that breaks my heart is is is... There are so many world-changing ideas, inventions, new technologies, 
scientific breakthroughs, um, wisdom traditions. There are so many incredible things out there that could make a difference in people's lives. But how to take that which is invisible or abstract or intangible and make it accessible for others? That question is the thing that that I'm obsessed with, that propels me in my life and in my work. Um, Because there's so many good things that get lost in translation. And, you know, I spent much of my life lost in translation. You know, my dad's a mad scientist and inventor. And I've seen many of his things have great success and far more not reach the light of, you know, the light of day because they got lost in translation. My mom's an artist and a toy designer and a teacher. And she similarly, you know, as thousands of ideas and concepts for, for new products or new toys and games that, um, you know, she's had her struggles of how to share that with the world. Um, and, you know, then as an entrepreneur, I've had my struggles and in turn that ends up being, um, you know, the kinds of folks that I serve that, that tend to be um, – you know, trailblazers and visionaries who are working on a really epic scale. Mm. And um, so, you, you, you know, like, who would so have I'm, thought? I'm, I'm seeing like, my, you know, like, like one, one's life. The last thing I'll just say here, Danny, to kind of stick the landing is, like, while we're in it, when we're eating the shit pies, our life feels like it has no meaning. We're like, oh, my God, this fucking sucks. You know, like, I'm, you know, look, I was a really chubby kid. I still, you know, am a chubby guy. Like, I always have, like, a belly, you know. And um, I was really awkward and terrible at sports. And, like, there were all these things that's, like, that, that you know, I, and I was so depressed and miserable growing up in my teens and in my early 20s and didn't have many friends and all these things. And while you're there, you're like, oh, my God. It's only in hindsight you look back and you go, wait a second. There's something about all that stuff I went through that actually is character building that was the perfect training ground for me to fulfill my life's mission or purpose, for me to do my real work. You know, And it's taking the time to connect those dots because when you do, you discover natural authority, which is like the story of who you were born to be. That's the undeniable story. That's the story that, that the world is waiting to hear from each and every single one of you. So that's kind of really linked to your purpose, right? Yeah, although look, I, I have a piece I wrote that, that, that people really love that, um, that's a bit contrarian around this because it, 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 uh, the, the title of the piece is Stop Trying to Save the World – and find a better mission. <laughs> because what often happens is this, this whole notion of um, like our purpose. Or, we, we often tend to project out onto the world like what's really ours to do. Like helping others reach their potential is not your life's mission. Helping to make the world a better place or teach others how to grow and transform. Like... <laughs> your mission is something that is very specific that comes from like comes deep from within it's it's a riddle that you're trying to solve and it's deeply personal it's usually reflected um, it's usually a reflection of your own inner struggle and until you can name that inner struggle 
I don't give a crap about your kumbaya, I want to make a better world. It means nothing. It's an external projection. And it has no gravitas. It's got no mojo behind it. Because you're not being honest with yourself. Not authentic. What's not. really at stake? Yeah, what's really burning inside of you? And when you can name that, and you can um, be honest about it, and then talk about how you're fueling or channeling that struggle or grist in service to the world, or as you heal that, you get to heal others, you get to serve others, that is power. That is true service. Um, but you got you got to find that that bigger story, and it's something personal, vulnerable, and revealing. That's great. So I've listening to some of the examples you've given here. I've I've seen three kind of themes emerge, uh, story themes, and one is uh, <clears throat> one is kind of you mentioned shit pies and struggle. So this yeah. could be like um, this this kind of theme could be like a profile in courage where um, someone is going through this injustice, suffering. Um, but they, despite all this, they persevere and they accomplish something remarkable. Another one that, that another theme that I see emerge here is the one of great aspirations, where someone has a story to tell, but they want to tell the world, you know, and they, they haven't gotten out. So, um, you know, maybe they know that the world can be a better place, but they have to give their unique, authentic gifts. And then their third one, I think, um, is something that I think a lot of young people go through. It's kind of that story of the underdog. And that's kind of like what I went through. I think it was exact same for you when you were in this startup at 24. Uh, you're out to prove yourself, you know, and you're kind of like David versus Goliath, you know, going out into the business world. And you're going to kill yourself because you have something to prove. You're the underdog and you want to come out on top. So those are kind of three of the themes that I see emerging here. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really astute, Danny. And at the same, at the same time, uh, I would just caution anybody listening that uh, we we don't really care about a story that's focused on self congratulations. You know, like just be careful. Like there's there, there there's a lot to social media these days, which is uh, what I consider exercises in ego masturbation. You know, that is the, like, like the, the, oh, well, let me tell you, yeah, I've been through it. Look at me and look what I've had to overcome. And there's a subtle distinction, but a really critical one, which is who are you telling this story for? Are you telling it for your own ego validation or are you telling it in service to those who you're meant to serve in service of what they need to know about you. Like what part of my story do you need to know so that you can trust me with yours? That's why I share some of the things about my past and my history. And like personally, Danny, I honestly, I don't really give a crap. Like I, I don't, I don't have some propensity or this, this need to share these war stories or to let you guys know, you know, I've been through some things. <laughs> I just don't care. Yeah. Um, it, it's not what propels me and I don't think it's what really serves or honors the work, but. So what's, what's about, a more practical yeah. application that can bridge the empathy gap in a business situation between, uh, you know, if I want to become part of your story, 
what what would be really useful? You know, what part of my story would be useful? Yeah, well, so um, there's a few things. We have a, actually one of our methodologies that that we teach to Google and Greenpeace and Deloitte and Facebook and so on. It's called Undeniable, and it's a six-step methodology around storytelling for innovation, design, and change. And uh, just the first three principles in this methodology, and it's um, uh, context, emotion, and evidence. So what often happens is we start our, you know, in business, everybody leaves with the data. And if you start with the data, your story is dead on arrival. Because we all know you can find data, facts, numbers to support any position. And so that data means nothing to us. What you want or what you need to do is, is first set context, something that captures imagination, that gets people leaning in. Imagine if, right? Get people curious about a big idea. And then you focus on the emotion, which is what's at the heart of the story, right? Who's at the center of the story? What do they want and what gets in their way? Right, that's the place of empathy. Like we're wow, you really you really get my world. From that place, all right, now I want to know the evidence that allows me to believe in this story. That like, yeah, wow, like you just made me see something with context, you just made me feel something with emotion, and then you just made me believe something with the evidence that sticks the landing. But we got to see it and feel it in order to believe it. What are the other three steps? You mentioned the six-step methodology, right? Yeah, you know, I don't teach those um, the, uh, in this sort of context. It's it's a kind of thing in our in a two-day uh, intensive that we go deeper into. Even in our one-day program, all we teach are those first three. It's all you need. Okay. So for <laughs> for uh, for somebody who's just kind of you want to learn how to work this lightsaber. Just learn context, emotion, and evidence, and you can build every single communication piece from your from uh, your homepage to a business presentation to a keynote uh, to a marketing campaign based on context, emotion, and evidence. Okay, very cool. So this, I'm actually thinking of you know Oren Clough, right? He has yeah, uh, pitched anything. He and I old friends. Yeah, his pitch decks are almost exactly as you describe. He starts out with that big idea, and I've read his pitch mm-hmm. decks. You know, like he'll talk about, he'll do a pitch for climate change, for example. And the big idea is uh, to save humanity, you have to tackle some really nasty problems like climate change, clean energy, species loss. Uh, but species loss is irreversible, you know. And then so he gets he starts out with that big idea, and then he he leads in with that emotion, you know, like what we're losing here. Um, and then he's got a whole bunch of facts and figures, you know, to back up his big idea. So it's kind of similar to that, right? That kind of model. Well, there, there's a one, look when when the, the moment you get um, ten storytelling uh, teachers in the room, you're going to hear ten different uh, paths up the mountain. So Oren does phenomenal work. Um, I highly recommend his book. 
And, um, you know, we each have our own philosophy and approach to other certain things that, that are similar. And we also each have our own distinct nuances. So uh, give, me, give me some ideas of emotion because I think context and evidence are pretty obvious. Um, context is a big idea. Evidence is the facts and figures. How do you bake in that emotion? Well, here's the thing. We actually don't – we tend to use emotion in a way – like we use emotion as a weapon against people. You know, which is like like the traditional model of of marketing is problem solution. You know, like like remind them of their pain so that you can give them the pill. And this is why we all fucking hate marketing, because we feel so incredibly manipulated and and misabused by inadequacy marketing, like these messages that make us feel like crap, and then try to sell us on some promise of a better tomorrow after we feel like crap. So a lot of what we teach is the opposite, which instead of problem-solution, you want to tell the possibility-obstacle story. So you want to help people to, to connect to the opportunity, to that inherent desire. What do people want more of in their life and what gets in the way? What's that inherent uh, tension uh, or, or dilemma that people face? Uh, you know, for it can be things like, you know, how incredible is it that with technology, we, uh, you know, can be more interconnected to each other than ever before. And yet the same technology is making us feel more and more removed from each other at the same time. Right? Like that's a paradox. That's a dilemma. And, you know, and, and, and I've had a client who's building a, an app for mindfulness. Use that as part of the core sort of uh, creative tension at the heart of their story, you know, or I've got another, I've got a Silicon Valley client is a, a VP of, of um, that that's building the campus of the future. So they have a billion dollar budget over the next few years to build the campus of the future. And everybody loves that dream of, you know, what the new house is going to look like. Nobody wants to live in the house while it's going through the renovations. Right there is that creative tension, you know, or, uh, you know, another client that's got a, uh, you know, they have a technology platform. They raise their series a really smart guys. These guys are perpetually, um, spinning off new, new startups and taking them to scale and selling them. And so their latest one, they raised a whole bunch of money in, in a big series a, they've got the product out in the marketplace. It's a software as a service, and they've got lots of big name clients, but they're noticing that the story that they built for investors doesn't really translate for a lot of prospective customers. Um, and part of it has to do with the category that they're in, and the category that they're in is uh, customer support. You know, for big technology companies. And what they what we realized was when we really looked at who their prospective buyer is, which is like a head of customer support. A head of customer support in, in these big companies are like the Rodney Danger field of technology. Oh, I can't get no respect around here. Right? Like they're 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 used and misabused in um, in how you know people think of customer support just as a cost center as opposed to uh, really a place where uh, value is being created in the organization. So that's the inherent tension 
that that perspective buyer is dealing with. And they're like, they can't, you know, they have such a hard time being able to see a big visionary story because they're just told you have to right, answer like more, like, like have a higher uh, client response rate at a lower cost, right? Like, like basically how many tickets can we respond to faster and cheaper, and their fear is, well, the more I perform on that, the lower the quality of the experience is going to be. Right? So they're, they're, they're worried about that compromise. So th- these are a few different examples. Do these help, Danny? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, I was thinking also about, uh, I know that you have, you're a big fan of chocolate, right? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm high on it right now as we speak. Because <laughs> no, because I'm, I'm just I was thinking a little bit because this is something that I think can provide also like an invisible link of empathy where they can kind of the person that you might never have met before uh, they can kind of relate to you a little bit and and we were actually talking about this before the call. Uh, another example was you wanted to have a video chat with me before we started the podcast, yeah. and we we mentioned that I, I mentioned that example of the radiologist who would look at a photo of someone before they did an x-ray, before they did a scan of someone, and they would mm-hmm. write better reports, they would perform better because they felt more empathy with that person. And the reason I, I bring up chocolate is because um, you, you have this something you call chocolate secret, and I, I'm thinking yep. of other examples like AppSumo, they're always saying that they love tacos. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk yep. says, I want to buy the Jets. Yeah. These little things yep. that, like, you feel like she's sharing these passions can help people uh, I think it's like kind of like an advantage there because they can sort of suddenly relate to you even though they've never met you, right? Absolutely. Well, that's the, you know, look, I eat more chocolate than the average human. I throw <laughs> chocolate tasting parties called Return of the Chocosaurus Rex. I travel the world as a nomad with kilos of chocolate in my bag. You know, everywhere I go, you know, chocolate is the icebreaker. It, and uh, there's, you know, there are a few better ways of making friends than the universal language of chocolate. And in Switzerland as a kid, I mean, I can go on and on. Like, chocolate is my birthright. It is so deep in me. And, uh, <laughs> it runs through so your veins, it, huh? Chocolate? It, it, it really, exactly. I don't bleed red, right? Like, I bleed the cocoa. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, find it. Uh, so much of this, everything we're talking about is re- about relationship, identity and relationship. Do, you, do I belong in your story? Do you belong in my story? Like, what are the invisible lines of connection? Like, when you and I figured out that you grew up in San Diego and I lived in L.A., it was like, oh, okay. Like, we, we realize we have these overlapping spheres of identity. Or the fact that we're both nomads. Like, we, you know, there, I think there's a natural rapport, respect and a collegiality that comes with that, right? So we're, we're looking um, through all of our sphere of relationships, like who are people who, who in some way see the world like I see the world? Uh, and then also things like chocolate or the New York Jets, uh, what, you know, what those do is they give people the social icebreakers that make you more approachable. So there's not a week that goes by where I don't get a tweet or an email from one of my fans that uses chocolate as the icebreaker. Uh, and uh, so that's the other part of it is just the, I don't know, like we're, we, we can all, we all get sometimes like, 
uh, fanboy or fangirl about somebody and we're like, whoa, I don't know. Is, is it okay for me to reach out to this person? Where are they, are they going to respond to me? Blah, blah, blah. Like we all have – at the end of the day, we're all afraid of being judged and rejected, including me. I mean this is what got me into story work. Remember, I was like that nerd that everybody picked on. Right? I, I was used to being like the second kid picked uh, on the playing field for – just about every single game that we played at school, right? I would just literally sit there and pray. I'm like, please don't let me be last. Please don't let me be last. You know, I'm like, it's pathetic. I mean, literally, I would be, I'd be relieved. I, I was, I was like half ashamed, but I was relieved when I was second to last being picked. Okay? Like that's what I, that's what I was hoping for. That, that's the only hope mm-hmm. I could, I could hold out for. All right, that's how bad I was. You know, at just you know, kickball, handball. Tetherball, you name it, right? Yeah, so, so that's a really uh, disempowering story. If you're just <laughs> <laughs> hoping that you're not the last one to be picked, I mean, you must. I can only imagine your self-esteem must be so low at that point. Oh yeah. Oh sure. Yeah. You know, but it's like I don't know. I look back now and I just laugh. You know, it's just look. We, we all have to pay. We all have to pay for our education. You know, like, but, and it comes in many different forms. Around, yeah, but it, again, well, that's just that's just the inner game. That's just like you got to do the work, and the work is f- far more on the inside than it is on the outside. Yeah, well, you I know? think I think that um, small wins on the outside can really influence the story that you tell yourself. They become reference experiences, you know. Mm-hmm. And I know that. I mean, these things are great that we're talking about here because these. People are able to connect over passions. You mentioned travel, nomadism. I really yeah. resonate strongly with entrepreneurship, with traveling, and sometimes I don't know which one is more important to me. Do I want to be known as an entrepreneur? Do I want to be known as a traveler? And sometimes I, I hover between the two, you know, because at different times in my life, one is more important than the other. Um, but I, mm-hmm. I find that definitely, like, the more I accomplish, the more small wins in my life, the more um, experience that I have actually doing what I want to do, how I want to identify myself as, the easier it becomes. And and the story of my life becomes more empowering, and I can share that with people easier. The, the question I have is, because we mentioned this earlier in the interview, you mentioned relationships. And yeah. relationships provide a lens for how other people view you. So you might see your yep. story as one way, but then subjectively, someone else might see it another way. So mm-hmm. how do you recommend that we... How do we consciously take control of the story that other people interpret when they see us? Mm, with great compassion. Mm. You know, I'll never forget. Well, I went through uh, when I was uh, I, I went through a divorce in two thousand nine, and I remember the day that my ex and I separated. I was in New York City at the time, and I showed up at my brother's doorstep. My brother's three and a half years older than me, yet since maybe the age of six, up until the age of when I was six years old, my brother was my hero. I looked up to him. I followed his every word and action. And then at some point around the age of six, one time he like, he's like, oh, Michael, run downstairs and go get this and we'll go build this fort. And I looked at him and I was like, no. And ever since that day, you know, I've, I've rode my own horse. And so... The interesting thing was on that day, I show up at my brother's doorstep and um, he took me in with you know loving arms 
and then that night, you know, he was talking to me, and uh, and there was something he shared with me that night that I never forget. And he reminds me. He reminded me then. Um, he said, "Look, Michael. You know, my, so my brother's gay, and and he reminded me. He's like, look, well, the best piece of advice that he was ever given when he came out was, remember that like you've gone through years." of processing and uh, reflection to get to this place where you're ready to tell the new story to the world. But just because you've had all of that time and you've come to this resolution and clarity, you got to remember that the rest of the world is going to take time. It's going to need time to catch up. So he was reminding me similarly, you know, and and my ex-wife and I, like we'd been, you know, going through counseling and trying all these things for a year and, you know, trying to really make it work. But like when we separated that day, like I was clear, I was just like, all right, we've done everything. We want different things. I was so clear about the new story. And he was reminding me that just because I'm in the new story doesn't mean that everybody else is. Most people are still in the old story of who I am or how they relate to me. And so, I mean, this is a lot of the work that I do with with the you know senior leaders that we work with in, in big big organizations, as well as with entrepreneurs. Is you're putting forward a new story, but the rest of the world's living in the old story. So, how do you tell your new story in a way that doesn't make people in the old story feel like shit? that they're wrong, bad, or stupid for being in that old story. Um, And this is really, in many ways, the crucible of every innovator or change agent or entrepreneur. Because the moment you you bring forward a new story, you uh, are telling a story that for some people might feel like you're negating the old story that they're holding. And nobody likes to be confronted with that. Or you you have to... connect people to the new story in a way that is that is really thoughtful, sensitive, um, so that they don't feel that they're wrong, bad, or stupid in the process. So I'm thinking of the, uh, the laws of power and the how you can recreate yourself. And, um, and I think that he says in that book that once the world assigns that role to you, um, then you're kind of forced to act that part. And sometimes you... Yeah. And sometimes it says that you have to... Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking over some of the notes here. Like, yep. you have to... He says that you have to be aware of what your audience will... Ple- what will please your audience and what will bore them. Uh, do, you, do you agree with some of these things? And he says you have to learn to use dramatic techniques such as surprise, suspense, creation of sympathy, and symbolic identification... You know, with, with all with all due respect um, to um, what I know is the book that a lot of people really really love and appreciate, um, I have a very different stance on life. And uh, <laughs> you know, there the you know, and, and so you know, those who are listening, you can agree with me or not. It's totally fine. You know, uh, I'm okay with that. But I, I believe that. Um, but the, the, the more we try to focus on, for instance, even and it affects even my approach to storytelling. Like most people, 80, 90% of people teaching storytelling teach performance storytelling. Like how to tell a better anecdote. And like you said, things like suspense and drama and like foreshadowing and all these different different elements of being a good performer. 
Now, in my experience, you want to become like a good performer, you're going to suck for a really good while. And in business and in relationships, we can't afford to suck for a really good while. Uh, one of the great loves of my life, when I lived in New York City, I had a, uh, my ex-girlfriend there. We were together for four years, and she was an actress and in the theater. So I'd go to a lot of theater. Well, if you go to, a, if you go to theater in New York City, you see a lot of bad theater. Have you ever sat through bad theater, Danny? There is, On a couple there, of there is not much worse. I've, oh I've been I've been a part of those uh, the bad theater I think in like sixth grade during the plays and such. So. Well, we, we've all we've all had those moments too. Right? Yeah. But, but the, see, to me, bad there's nothing worse than bad theater because it feels heavy-handed. Like you can feel people trying too hard. So the stuff that you were just talking about to me, it's so easy to come off trying too hard in a way that feels inauthentic. Mm. Uh, Do you believe we're all performers, though? Are we all performing? We are, absolutely. Mm. But the way that I teach performance is through presence. It's actually come more into who you truly are and let that be the performance of your life, your authentic self. Okay. Because I think a lot of people Instead of trying to perform into being somebody you think the world wants you to be. Oh, my God. Because so many people might be thinking, like, I don't want to be a performer. I'm just going to live my life the way that mm-hmm. I see fit. And I don't give a damn what everybody else thinks. But, you know, we live in an interdependent world. I mean, how we portray ourselves to others is very, very important. So if, if you're taking that tack, you might want to reconsider because it's almost like burying your head in the sand a little bit, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's why, like, you know, we, to your point, I mean, life is performance art. We're all on stage, but I, I'd much rather bet the house on you becoming more of who you truly are and letting that presence be your performance than you trying to perform being somebody you're not. Does that make sense? That's a great sentiment to, to wrap up this interview on, I think, Michael. <laughs> mm. We could just, yeah, just be, right be, be you, right? Yeah. The, like the, I mean, like, I think at the end of the day, that's what we all want. But, the, but by the way, there, I mean, look, we, frankly, you know, back to, you know, the art of persuasion, since you're, you know, you're talking about some of these, you know, the laws of power and so on. There is nothing more seductive than someone who knows who they truly are. I'm, I'm writing that one down. One second. <laughs> there's there's <laughs> right? nothing more it's seductive like, than someone who knows who they truly are. Yeah. You're just like, like a, um, for me personally, that's the ultimate turn on. You know, even if somebody's being who they truly are in a way that's like, whoa, I so don't see the world that way. Whoa, that's so not my bag, but fuck you're so good at it you're so fucking you hell yeah and 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 the gift of of who you are comes through that gift right but it's you know uh, yeah and so one one more question i guess this is kind of the last question i want to ask you is 
what what do you recommend? How do we discover who we truly are? Do we have to go and be a nomad and travel the world for a year, or is there any other techniques or things that work really well for you? Yeah, I mean, this is what I what I you know work in service to in creating courses and programs and resources for for folks that are entrepreneurs and innovators and change agents. So. I would I would really encourage anybody who's been who's been listening to this really deep conversation, Danny. I'm I, I really grateful for the 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 depth and candor of 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 the conversation. Uh, it's it's my favorite kinds of conversations to have. Um, but I would recommend to people we have a actually you can take a free uh, introductory course of mine called the Red Pill. If you go to getstoried.com, G E T. S T O R I E D dot com forward slash red pill. And uh, it's five lessons on how to get your story straight, starting with your personal brand story. Um, and, the, and really, it, it opens up the door to core issues of your identity uh, and how you can serve more people and have a bigger impact in the world by understanding the journey of where you're coming from and, and where you want to go. Fantastic. And that's at getstoried.com. And I think you have a free ebook on there as well, right? Yeah. So getstoried.com forward slash red pill is red the pill. free online course. Uh, and then I think getstoried.com forward slash the book is uh, you can download uh, one of my books. Uh, it's called Believe Me, a storytelling manifesto for change makers and innovators. Uh, that's available as a, as a free PDF, um, or you can also get it on Amazon uh, if you want the print version. It's bright yellow cover. It's got a great cuddle factor. Uh, but either way, yeah, it's um, it's uh, yeah. Those are those are some great starting points for folks. And um, you know, it's uh, at the end of the day, just remember that. Um, no, you know, no matter how much money you make, uh, what kind of car you drive, uh, or any other choices, your your greatest creation in life is always your own life story. Thank you so much, Michael. So, what's next for you? How are you? Um, where is your story going to go from here? Where do you see it going? Mm. No, I mean my my mission is to teach the world how to become fluent in narrative. So, you know, we are building new worlds. Uh, we're at a time, such an inflection point in human history. And what society is going to look like 10 or 20 years from now is beyond the imagination for 99.9% of us, including me. I got no freaking idea what this world's going to look like. But what I do know is if we're building worlds with technology and design and and all of these new tools that we have for the publication and distribution of ideas that uh, becoming fluent in that language and narrative is, is the DNA source code of our humanity. And the more we learn that, the more all the other problems and challenges that we face in our own lives and in the world will take care of themselves. So I'm just continuing to build that educational learning platform um, and, uh, and, and helping to really gather gather the tribe of innovators and trailblazers and change agents that are all four corners of the earth who are doing amazing work who who just need some support in how to get their story straight so that what they're doing to transform the world's got even more legs and amplification behind it. 
Thank you so much for your work, Michael, and thank you so much for your time and sharing your story here with us. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure, Danny. It's been an absolute joy. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. You too.